So tonight we get to start Luke. Um, Luke is a lot more chapters than Hosea was. We're going to go through Luke a lot slower than we went through Hosea. Uh, I've been joking with some of you about this, but uh, my goal is that uh, as we're a young church, we can raise some children in Luke. So uh, you have that to look forward to. So we're going to be here for a while. Uh, That being said, uh, you'll notice tonight we're only tackling the first four verses. Uh, That's probably going to be a habit we're going to maintain throughout Luke in terms of pacing. So um, we can chew over it, mull over it. Uh, There's no hurry to get through this. Uh, We want to get as much as we can out of this gospel uh, because it is extremely rich, it is extremely theological, uh, and it is extremely practical for us in our daily practice as believers. Uh, There's a ton that we could say about Luke. Uh, It's got a lot of themes going on. We're going to take all of them in turn, but tonight my ambition is to give you an overview of what you can expect to find in Luke so that as we come through the gospel, we have at least a broad overview of what we're walking through. Uh, before we start the journey, I want to make sure we have the path clearly marked out, that we have some objective and some goal in mind as we're walking through it, and some anticipation of the, the goal that Luke had even in writing this gospel. I want to start with uh, what's maybe not so obvious to you, because it's printed in all of our Bibles, whether you have an ESV or an NIV or uh, an NASB or whatever translation you have in front of you. Uh, it'll say something like the gospel according to Luke right at the top. Now, what's interesting is Luke's name appears nowhere in this gospel. The reason we know it's Luke is for a few reasons, but I want to make sure that we point them out clearly because one of the things uh, that the Bible faces today in our culture is a lot of criticism for uh, authority, inspiration, uh, can it be really reliable, and can it be trusted? And something like this uh, is easy uh, for us to, if we're not aware, to become confused by and to become potentially... uh, stumped by, if someone knows their stuff and comes and challenges us with the word. And so I want to give you some reasons as to why we know it was Luke and something that you can look through in your study as, you're, as we're going through Luke to kind of claim his authorship. Because if we know who wrote the book, we can start to know a little bit about their personality and their intentions with writing this work. And so how do we know that it was Luke who wrote this gospel? Well, first off, we can look at church tradition and church history to see who was the book originally attributed to. Now, if you know anything about how the canon of Scripture was formed, it was contentious at points. There are certain things that were hard fought. There are battle lines that were drawn. There was a lot of time and effort and energy that went into identifying authorship, identifying the canon, identifying what was and what was not Scripture. But in all of that storm, Luke's authorship has never once been disputed in church history. The authorship of Luke... Uh, the claim that he wrote the third gospel that we have in our canon of scripture has never been disputed. In fact, in the early century, as early as the, the AD 90, so 90 years after the church, uh, after Jesus was born, and this is right after a lot of the gospels had been being written, uh, there is a canon quoting and attributing this writing to Luke uh, himself. And so you can go to Irenaeus, uh, Tertullian, Origen, Clement of Alexandria, All of these early church fathers affirmed without any dispute that Luke was the author of this gospel. And so that's important to know, not because tradition is the the chief source of authority, but because it gives us some indication of how the early church fathers, the ones who were present, who were alive during the time, and who passed on the tradition to their followers, how they viewed this gospel. And so that is one way in which we can know and 
attribute to or at least hold some confidence in Luke. And given that there was no dispute on it, there's no reason for us today, 2,000 years later, to begin questioning his authorship. But I don't want to stop there. I want to give you some additional points that you can look at. There's some internal evidence within the text that we can look at as well to see that Luke was, in fact, the author of this third gospel. So internal evidence, uh, if you know anything about this, Luke is not the only volume that was written by the same author. The book of Acts was also addressed to and written by the same person. So the book of Acts, if you'll turn there with me to Acts chapter 1, verse 1, we're going to see a similar introduction to which we have just read this evening. So Acts chapter 1, verse 1. So I'm going to read from Luke while you're still turning to Acts. He addresses this work uh, to the most excellent Theophilus. And he says that you may have certainty concerning the things that have been taught. And then in Acts chapter 1, verse 1, he says, In the first book, O Theophilus, and now he's referring to, this author is referring to the volume we're going to start tonight, that third gospel. He says, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. So whoever wrote Acts also wrote the first volume, Luke. And this is important, and we're going to call it Luke because we're talking about his authorship right now, but we're going to refer to it as Luke. Um, The author of Acts was the author of that third gospel. And so if we can find out who the author of Acts was, we can be confident that it was the same author for the first gospel. In Acts chapter 16, and we don't have to turn there now, you can look at this at your own, In Acts chapter 16, the story of Paul and his missionary journey goes from a reference to they and what Paul has done to a reference to we and what we are doing. And this is interesting because the author of the Acts account, the missionary journey of Paul, begins to refer to Paul and his journeys and even his imprisonments through a we perspective. The author of the book of Acts was present with Paul in prison while Paul was on his missionary journeys. In fact, going from Acts 16 even till the end of the book of Acts, when Paul is in his final imprisonment in Rome, you still find references to we and references to that author being present with Paul even on the shipwreck uh, on the journey to Rome. So whoever wrote Acts was present with Paul as a missionary companion, and we get those references to we. So the author is claiming personal uh, uh, eyewitness accounts of those events as they occurred. Now, We can see a list of Paul's companions through his letters, his epistles that he writes to different churches. And I would like you to turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4, and we're going to be uh, starting in verse 9. So this is a list of Paul's companions. Uh, There's a bunch of names that are listed, a bunch of people who Paul did missions with. We have read and close out the book of Romans, which lists a whole host of people who Paul did ministry with and was involved in the mission of the church with. But here he's going to list a discrete group of people who not only did ministry with him, but were faithful with him until the end. And so in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 9, Paul says, I'm in 1 Timothy, sorry. 2 Timothy 4, 9. Paul says, do your best to come to me soon. He's writing to Timothy. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. 
Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with you at Capris, at Troas, also the books, and above all the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he is strongly opposed to our message. Then in verse 16, At my first offense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. This is Paul writing his last recorded epistle before he is executed at the hands of the Roman government. The last words of Paul and the last one who is faithful to Paul, even until the end, is a man named Luke, who Paul refers to in Colossians chapter 4 as the beloved physician in another list of people who did missionary journeys with Paul. Luke stays faithful with Paul until the end, until this last epistle has been written, or this last uh, letter to Timothy. And in the book of Acts, we find Paul's imprisonment is uh, charted and it is documented up until that same final imprisonment in Rome. And so we know whoever wrote the book of Acts, the same author of the third gospel, was the person who was with Paul until the very end, the physician Luke. So with those we passages in mind, with Paul referring to him as the only one who stayed with him till the end, uh, and with Paul, uh, and with no uh, other evidence to give us uh, cause for concern, we can rest assured that although Luke never refers to himself personally in this gospel work, that it is indeed Luke, the author of this third gospel, which we will be studying for a while. Now, that is who Luke is and proof of his authorship. Now, the reason I go through a heavy amount of time to make that point is because if we know who Luke is and we know what his concern is in writing this gospel, we can get to the heart of what he is trying to communicate to us and what he was trying to communicate to his uh, here, or the person who is receiving this, Theophilus. So we can find out some things about Luke. We're going to get to know him personally, and my goal is by the end of this evening that you will feel like you know what his ambition was with writing these two accounts, Luke and Acts. So who is Luke? Luke was loyal to Paul. We can see the previous passage about that, and Luke was with Paul in several imprisonments, three that we have documented, uh, although he no doubt was with Paul in the beatings, and was with Paul in very hostile environments uh, and oppression. So he was loyal to Paul up until the very end. Even when everyone else had deserted Paul or gone to other missions, Luke stayed as a personal aide to Paul. We also know about Luke that he was a Gentile. Luke, uh, not only by his name, which is a Gentile name, but also by the fact that Paul, when he lists him in another set of companions, this is also in Colossians chapter 4, he lists companions of the circumcision, and then he lists additional companions who are with him, of which Luke is part of the latter group. So we know Luke is not a Jew, and so therefore he is part of the Gentile group, which is significant because Luke wrote a gospel account as a Gentile to an early church that was largely Jewish, and Jesus was a Jewish Messiah. And if you remember Paul, who takes great pains in the book of Romans to try to reconcile the Jewish and Gentile divide in the early church, Luke, in undertaking his gospel account, 
is going to begin to, as a Gentile, begin to make a case for the fact that the Gentiles are also to be included in the promises of Jesus, that he is not only the Jewish Messiah, but he is the Messiah of the whole world. So this is Luke's ambition. He's a Gentile, but we also know that Luke is a physician. And Paul, in that same list in uh, Colossians, will say Luke, the beloved physician, which means that for Paul and his missions, who was badly beaten, constantly imprisoned, and likely malnourished all the time, it would have been great a great providence of God for God to provide for him a physician who, if Luke was a physician, was highly trained. He was very well versed in keeping Paul alive and healthy and no doubt added at least some amount of years to Paul's life so that Paul could continue preaching and could go on with his mission uh, and his journey through the ancient world. So Luke was a Gentile. Luke was a physician. Luke was loyal. He was steadfast to Paul. Another thing that's interesting about Luke is he wrote more than one-third of the New Testament. He only wrote Luke and Acts, but together, uh, in terms of overall volume, he is tied with Paul in terms of the amount of chapters he is accountable for. Now, that being said, his chapters are much longer than Paul's chapters. So if you just look at chapters, he wrote one-third, Paul wrote the other third, and then you can attribute the rest to some other authors as well. But him, a Gentile, who never refers to himself personally in either of his works, by name or any, anything else, is responsible for one-third of the New Testament that we have today. Not an apostle, not someone who is with Jesus, simply a faithful follower of God who recorded all things closely and historically documented the story, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So he writes a lot of the New Testament, and we know also based on how he wrote these first four verses, and we miss this in the English, but in the four, first four verses of this gospel, It's really one long sentence, and in the English we have that. But what you don't know is that in the Greek language, this is written in a different form than the rest of the Gospel, than the book of Acts, than actually the rest of the New Testament. Most of the New Testament is written in what's called Koine Greek, or it's the common Greek tongue. It's the the tongue of the common people, which is interesting because they're they're trying to reach the masses of people. So all of the writers are writing in the common Greek tongue, so it can be most accessible to as many people as possible. Luke writes these first four verses in a totally different genre of Greek. He writes it in like high classical literary genre Greek. And this is unique because that means that he viewed his work not only as a common writing, but to be considered among the great literary works of the time. He also had to have been extremely well educated to write something with such sophisticated grammar and structure. We don't have time tonight to get into all the different structures of this, but it's written with parallelism, with line structure, with repeats. And so he writes it in an extremely common literary form. He cites his sources, and he is going to make a declaration that this gospel work is to be considered among a great classical literary work of the time. He's making a claim about the story that he's about to tell. Not that it's a common story, not that it's only for the poor and the impoverished, but Jesus Christ and his truth can stand with the great intellectual giants of that time, He can stand with the mighty people. He can stand with the most excellent Theophilus. And those people will still serve the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Luke is making a claim about who this God is that he serves. So those are background pieces to Luke's gospel. And we're going to get into the text itself, I promise. Um, We're going to break it up really into two sections. In the first two verses, we're going to get to know Luke, the historian of the gospel account. So he's a historian, he's a pastor, he's a missionary, he's a theologian. Um, Luke is also uh, 
a, a physician. He's, he's got a whole bunch of hats that he's wearing. But specifically in these four verses, we're going to see him in two lights. First off is Luke the historian in the first two verses. And then we're going to take a look at Luke the theologian in verses 3 and 4. So we're going to get to know him as he recorded the events. And then we're going to start to take a look at what he intended to communicate through his record of the events. Luke has theology that he emphasizes that is different than any of the other Gospels that you will encounter. Some other notes on Luke before we get into that. Uh, There's a a dispute on the dating of Luke somewhere between 60 and 70 or 80 AD. For what it's worth, I lean towards the 60 end of that spectrum. I think 60 to 61 AD is a good, accurate account of that. It depends on what you claim his sources to be. Um, But there is a dispute on that within the church. It is really not that critical, though, for inspiration or authorship. And so we're not going to dwell much on that. Uh, Another note on Luke's gospel is it's addressed to a man named Theophilus, and there is some dispute, a minor amount of dispute, but some dispute as to whether Theophilus is a real person, or if you look at his name in Greek, it just means God lover, or so whether Luke is writing this to someone who is just a person who loves God, or rather uh, sarcastically addressed to just the general church, kind of cleverly. Uh, For what it's worth, Theophilus is most likely a real person. Luke addresses him as most excellent Theophilus which he addresses to Felix, who is a a governor in the ancient world when Paul stands against Felix in trial. He addresses him as most excellent Felix. And so uh, Theophilus is likely someone of high repute in the ancient world, and Luke is addressing him as such. So it's unlikely that he's referring generally to any person, but specifically to one person who is also a Gentile, likely a Gentile believer. So that being said, let's get into Luke and get to know Luke the historian in verses 1 and 2. So I'm going to read that first section again. He says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. I'm going to pause there. I know that's a fragment sentence. But we're just going to look right now at what Luke is trying to communicate in these first two verses. He says that many have undertaken to compile a narrative of these things, which means Luke is not the first person to take a crack at identifying who Jesus is, what he did, and what he accomplished in his life. So Luke is at least admitting here that he has some sources. And you can see in that second line, he says, just as those from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. So Luke is identifying sources, both written sources and oral sources or eyewitness accounts of the things that have happened. And this is important because, just like any ancient work, Luke has to defend that what he's saying is true and what he's saying is reliable. And this is important for us today because there are many people in this day and age who would like to discredit the works of Scripture and say that they are unreliable, that they are biased, that they don't have good and accurate sources. And so it is important for us to know that Luke does claim to have accurate sources. He knows in writing this gospel that there are going to be enemies of the advancement of the kingdom of God who will take a claim at the fact that who Jesus was is just a myth or who Jesus claimed to be is all misrecorded and that Jesus could be better understood as a historical teacher or a moral teacher or someone who was martyred but really with no purpose and that people made stuff up after he passed away. But Luke is going to say that he has eyewitness sources, firsthand testimony, and written documents about who Jesus is and that he is going to, as a historian, take a look at this evidence. There's a whole lot of sources that scholars will say Luke used. 
Uh, at least Matthew and Mark are typically on that list of Gospels that Luke would have had access to. Uh, it's part of the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are. And so you'll see a lot of the information that's in those Gospels is repeated. You'll see a lot of the same parables. You'll see a lot of the same teachings, a lot of the same miracles recorded in these Gospel accounts, which means that they likely borrowed from one another to ha- highlight key events in Jesus' ministry because they're telling a story about the same guy. So it makes sense that they have corroborating pieces of information. But also, Luke has additional unique information that is not present in either Matthew or Mark. And so there is reason to believe that there are some ancient manuscripts that Luke had access to in the first century that we have since lost to time. One such manuscript is known as the Q document, and another one is known as the L document, which is Luke's unique source material. For what it's worth, not all scholars agree on these estimated early documents, but everyone does agree that Luke is claiming to have written source material that he is borrowing from, analyzing, and taking a look at to compile his gospel account. Now, for what it's worth, that doesn't mean that he was an inspired author or that he was just copying things that other people have written down and just kind of hodgepodging together a story. He critically looks at all the firsthand source material, takes a look at all the information, and from there begins to make his assessment of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Now, Luke doesn't only claim to have written documents. He also claims to have oral, uh, oral accounts of who Jesus was, oral traditions that were passed down to him. He specifically refers to the eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. One thing that is unique about Luke is we can even see in the first three chapters of his gospel, he has these stories of Jesus' birth being foretold and John the Baptist's birth being foretold that are recorded uniquely to his gospel in no other way in any other gospel. And so what that means is that Luke likely had access also to Elizabeth and to Mary as firsthand eyewitnesses so that he could compile their testimony of what happened and include that in his gospel. At one point, an angel appears to Mary and Luke has that exact exchange recorded in his account, although he was never there, he wasn't even a Christian at the time. And he also has the personal meditations of Mary recorded here as well, which means he likely had access to interviewing her and getting to hear her take on who Jesus was and who the angel claimed Jesus to be when he was prophesied and his birth was foretold. So he has those accounts from Elizabeth and Mary, but he also has the teachings of the apostles. We know in the book of Acts that Luke traveled with Paul, but he also interacted with most of the other apostles through Paul's missionary journeys. He knew Timothy and Titus and a whole host of other believers in the early church. And so he has the teachings of all these apostles passed down to him. And when he's recording his gospel and he's penning it to paper, he's going to be sure that this gospel account is going to include accurate doctrine, accurate theology, accurate testimony about who Jesus was and what he came to do on this earth. Because as we know today, there are many people who admit that Jesus was a person potentially, but they will take issue with what he came here to do or what his exact mission or intent was. And so Luke is going to make sure that we're not confused about what Jesus' mission was and what his intent was on this earth. Many people have tried to assemble a gospel account, and Luke, in undertaking this narrative account, does not seek to thwart the previous gospels that have come before him. He doesn't contradict Mark or Matthew. He's not seeking to uh, take issue with any of the things that they say. He's simply seeking to add to and expand upon those teachings. And he does all of this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is uh, a topic unto itself. It's, it's a difficult one to point at, and it's hard to cut the lines between 
which was the Holy Spirit writing and which was the author writing. So I'm going to seek to uh, guard some of those things as we get into Luke because it's important that we know that even though he examined the firsthand eyewitness sources, that that doesn't in any way demean his ability to have been inspired by the Holy Spirit in what he wrote down. So, uh, Holy Spirit inf- inspiration, there's a few parts of Scripture that point to Holy Spirit inspiration. What is Scripture? And so if you'll turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, we're going to get a very on-the-nose statement about the Holy Spirit, and what it means when it says that Scripture is inspired by the Holy Spirit. What do we mean when we say that? 2 Timothy 3.16 says like this, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete equipped for every good work. All scripture is breathed out by God. The Greek for that is theonoustos, which means theo being God and noustos, the Holy Spirit. It is breathed out by God. It is transcribed by the Holy Spirit. Now, exactly how that works is not like the men were puppets and the Holy Spirit was possessing and controlling them. They wrote their own vocabulary. They wrote their own experiences. But in God's sovereignty and in his providence, The Holy Spirit inspired these authors with unique insights into the text, unique insights into the person of Jesus, and guarded them against errors of doctrine, errors of fact that were present in the early church because Jesus says he will send after he leaves the helper who will come to instruct them and train them in what they ought to say and what they ought to record. And so the Holy Spirit is that helper. And so Luke, standing down the stream of that tradition and that Holy Spirit arriving on this earth, is the beneficiary of that inspiration and that protection that is offered by being an inspired gospel writer. Which means when Luke says something that we don't see anywhere else, we don't have to question whether it is or is not scripture. Luke wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, his doctrine is scripture. This is traditional teaching in the church. This is common teaching in the church. This isn't a contradiction to say, although Luke includes things that other gospels don't include or that are uniquely found in Luke, that he, this was his own opinion or his own take on the matter. Luke wrote as inspired by the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit guarded him against all kinds of doctrinal errors. And so we can take his words and we can study them and we can seek to understand what he meant and gain our own understanding of that truth from his words. Luke, being a historian, was precise and was exact in his writings. He examined the evidence. He compiled all this data. He sat down to write an orderly account. And he says um, that he seeks to write an orderly account to Theophilus. Now, we're going to get more into what this means when we talk about Luke from a theologian perspective. But Luke, as a historian, is not seeking in this text to write a chronological series of events of Jesus' life. Largely speaking, the Gospel of Luke does follow a chronology from Jesus before he was born to Jesus' early birth to his early life and then to his whole ministry. It does follow a, a general chronology. But not all the pieces of his uh, gospel account are in exact chronological order. And there's a reason for that when we get into what theology he was emphasizing to understand this. So Luke generally writes what he considers an orderly or a logical account of events. And he has the most comprehensive time span between Luke and Acts. Almost 60 years of the early church is covered in that set of time. So Luke lastly identifies his eyewitnesses and his ministers. And he identifies them 
as eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. And these are the people who have delivered them uh, his firsthand testimony. Now, eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, that of the word is eyewitnesses and ministers of the gospel. Of the word is translated at other points in time to refer to specifically the message of Jesus Christ, his life, death, and his resurrection, the good news of Jesus. Now, why that's significant is in your text, it will likely say ministers of the word, but it also could be translated as servants of the word, which means these people who were early eyewitnesses, even Luke himself, who is downstream of the teaching of these eyewitnesses, they are not seeking to make up their own claims about who Jesus is. They are simply servants of the already delivered truth about who Jesus was. They are not advancing their own opinions. They're not advancing their own agenda. They are just being faithful to what has already been delivered to them as servants of the word. They're servants of the gospel. So we can rest assured that Luke, as a historian, was accurate. He was precise. By all accounts, he was one of the best early historians we even have access to in the ancient world. And so there are many who would seek to uh, take a look at Luke's work and try to discredit the miracle side of things, but still take a look at the historical evidence that they can corroborate because he was a very reliable historian. But my contention would be that if we can trust him on the facts that can be otherwise corroborated in history, that we ought to also trust his truthfulness with the miracles and other things that he records as well. So that's Luke the historian, getting to know him a little bit from that lens. Now let's take a look at Luke the theologian, which we're going to see in verses 3 and 4 of this text, when he begins to tell Theophilus why exactly it was that he began to write this initial gospel. What was his purpose in Matthew and Mark already existing, but he wants to write his own series of events, his own account for what took place. The first thing Luke says is that he judges it good for himself to write an account as well. He says in verse 3, It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some, for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. He says it seemed good to him to do so. In his judgment, it was the most fitting thing to do. That same language, it seemed good to me also, you can see in Acts, when they're deciding who they're going to send out on a missionary journey, and both the apostles will say it seemed good to them to send out Paul and Barnabas, and then the Holy, and they said it also seemed good to the Holy Spirit to allow Paul and Barnabas to go out. So in the judgment of Luke, under the Holy Spirit's inspiration, he is going to undertake the uh, task of writing both Luke and Acts, the two-volume work of the early church. This is the most comprehensive account of the life and ministry of Jesus, even expanding into him leaving and leaving behind the Holy Spirit. Luke has uniquely seven miracles that we find nowhere else in Scripture. They're unique to his gospel. Seven miracles that had Luke not done this, we would have never known about Jesus having done these things. And he also has 17 parables, give or take, depending on where you draw the lines on what a parable is or isn't, 17 or 19 parables that are unique specifically to his gospel. Teachings that give us insight into the kingdom, teachings that give us insight into who Jesus was and what he came to do, that had Luke not written this, we would not know these things or have these things be revealed to us about who Jesus was. So Luke's gospel is a theological work. Although Luke is a historian, he is seeking to advance a theological point. He has an intent when he is writing this text to teach Theophilus things that are true about doctrine. So then the question we can ask is, well, why does he go about writing both Luke and Acts? What, his, what is his purpose or his intent behind doing this? 
And the, the line that we can look to uh, is in verse 4. He says that you may have certainty concerning the things which you have been taught. Luke wants Theophilus to be certain about the things that have been delivered to him in the early church. No doubt at this point in the early church, there is a lot of questions about who Jesus was. The events are new. The stories are still being told. There are many who claim to have known this Jesus or claim to have been there or claim to have seen what he did or claim to know why he did the things that he did. And Luke wants Theophilus to be sure and to be grounded in the truth that he can have certainty about who Jesus was, that he was not deceived by Paul or by Peter or by anyone else who might have ministered to him, that he can have certainty about these things. And that's true, by the way, for us as well, that it is possible for you and I to have certainty about who Jesus is and what he came to do. Although this is an ancient book, although it was written a long time ago, it is possible for us to have certainty about the historical Jesus, that he was a real person, for us to have insights about the historical Jesus, not only as a person, but also as the God-man incarnate on this earth. And we have all kinds of accounts that point to the fact that he was not only just a good teacher, but that he also came with unique power that was bestowed upon him that no one else can do. You see, the rabbis in ancient Jewish time, they were good teachers. They were decent at expounding the law, but they never made lame people walk. Jesus does. And you know, there were people who could pull off tricks like that. We find the magicians in the book of Acts who seek the power of the Holy Spirit, but none of them ever rose from the grave. Jesus did. And so Luke is seeking to make sure that Theophilus can be certain about the accounts of Jesus' life. And in doing so, by extent, we can benefit from the fact that we can also be certain about the things that Luke records. Because thanks to the Holy Spirit, he records them not only for Theophilus, but also for our benefit as well. And so he says that he wants Theophilus to have certainty. This is his primary motivation in writing this text. Luke tells us on the front end what his intentions are. If you'll flip with me to the Gospel of John, we're going to go to chapter 20, and we're going to find that it takes John a lot longer to give his topic sentence. If you'll go to John chapter 20, verse 31, it's right at the end of chapter 20 of the Gospel of John. I'm going to start in verse 30. He says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But, verse 31, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John seeks to write his gospel, and at the end of writing all these events that have been recorded, he says, I write these things so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing in this man, Jesus Christ, that you would have life. He writes so that people can be converted to salvation. And not only converted, but secured in the belief of that. Luke says that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. These are the things which are being taught about Jesus, which Luke seeks to teach, and which all the apostles consistently taught in the early church. If you'll also flip with me to Acts again. Acts chapter 1, verse 1. Luke says the same thing in his introduction there. He expounds on this idea with another topic sentence. In Acts 1, verse 1, he says, In this first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up. 
And after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Here in Acts, the second volume, Luke expands on the Jesus who he has just finished talking about, which we'll get to eventually. But he says at the end of this that this Jesus presented himself alive after Luke records Jesus being crucified. Luke, as a historian and as a theologian, is making claims about who Jesus was. We talk about this a lot, but there's no people who are neutral to God. There are either those who are honoring to God and Christ's followers or those who are in rebellion to God. And Luke is making himself very clear on this point. He is a follower of God. And when he writes this work, he writes it as one who is seeking to defend who the historical Jesus was. Now, everyone is uh, biased on this point. There is no objective person when it comes to Jesus. There's no one who can take a look at the evidence and say that they are going to take a moral step back and look at it just objectively. Because Jesus demands a response, which means you land on one side of the line or the other. And there are those who would say that because Luke is a Christ follower, that his testimony of who Jesus was ought to be discounted. But those who don't believe in Jesus, their testimony of who he was 2,000 years later is not even close to as credible. Because not only are they not historians writing from that period in history, but also they have an agenda, which is to disprove the Jesus who Luke seeks here to prove. And so there are no people who are objective about this Jesus. And so just because Luke is a Christ follower doesn't make his account any less worthy or any kind of secondhand testimony about who Jesus was. Luke writes, and his writing can be trusted as reliable. Now again, he addresses it to Theophilus. Theophilus is likely a new believer. And there are several reasons for believing this, but the primary one is found here at the end of verse 4. He says, I want, to, I want you to have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Which means that Theophilus has already heard about these things, at least in some form. And Luke writing this addresses, takes time to write a third of the New Testament addressed specifically to this one man, which means he's not probably writing to convince someone about who Jesus is. In fact, there are many things that Luke and his gospel could have taken in a time to defend. But he assumes a lot of the miracles. He just teaches them as if they're true. He's not seeking to defend in any kind of apologetic way the miracles of Jesus. So he's probably not writing this to a skeptic in the early church. Also, Theophilus, because it's, he's identified as most excellent Theophilus, there are those who've said that Theophilus was a governor, and Luke is writing this to defend Christianity as a valid religion under the Roman authority. That Theophilus was a governor who could either make legal or remove the validity of Christianity as a religion, and that Luke is writing this not to convert Theophilus, but to just prove to him that Christianity is a valid religion. But if you take a look at how Luke addresses this and his specific focuses in this gospel, it would not make much sense for him to write it in this way if his, if his objective was just to defend it as being a valid religion. He could have gotten away with a lot less text if that was his objective. But his objective is overtly to make theological stances about who Jesus was in such a way that he's going to teach a new believer to have certainty and confidence in the things which have been taught. So the way John MacArthur would say this about all the Gospels, specifically Luke, he says the Gospels do not relate the story of a misunderstood ethical teacher, a failed social revolutionary, a model for selfless humility, or even a heroic martyr. 
they reveal the Savior who is God incarnate. This is what the Gospels are talking about. Don't be misunderstood just because Luke is saying that he is a historian, just because he's a theologian, just because he's a physician. That doesn't mean that he's going to take a step back and objectively present Jesus and let him do with him what you want to do with him. He is going to make specific claims that you either have to affirm or deny. But you can't read Luke and be left without the ability to make a conclusion. He is making claims about who Jesus is, and he is not to be misunderstood. So, Luke is going to focus on a few things in his theology. He makes theological claims. Like all good theologians, he's going to work in a systematic way of proving his points of theology about who Jesus was. And thankfully, Luke is an inspired theologian, which means everything he says can be trusted. So, Luke is going to focus specifically on God's plan, uniquely in salvation, his redemptive plan of history. And he sees this being fulfilled not only in Luke, but also continued in Acts with the delivery of the Holy Spirit. He's going to see John the Baptist and Jesus in their early life as fulfilling this ministry that God began from eternity past, his plan for salvation. The other thing Luke begins to focus on is specifically the role of the Holy Spirit. In no other gospel account is the Holy Spirit so emphasized and so underscored in terms of his importance. A lot of times the Holy Spirit is mentioned here or there, but in Luke and in Acts, and specifically in the early chapters of Acts, you get the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, and then periodically throughout the book you get the Holy Spirit moving in power to advance the early church. And Luke is making sure that we have a good, well-rounded, well-understood theology of who the Holy Spirit is and how he works. Uniquely, how vital he is for the validity and the dependence that the church has on this Holy Spirit. And by the way, that is still true today. The church is dependent on the movement of the Holy Spirit in order to advance, in order to uh, maintain faithfulness to God and his word, and in order to have any kind of power at all. So he focuses on God's plan, he focuses on the Holy Spirit. As a physician, Luke is uniquely concerned about the healings of Jesus. He mentions a lot of times lepers and their unique diseases. And in one gospel account where one of the other synoptics says that a woman who squandered money on physicians or was deceived by physicians and still not cured, Luke says, uh, we're going to leave that part out about the physicians, you know, messing that part up. So Luke ignores that part of it a little bit, which means you can probably rely on the fact that he was a physician, so he doesn't really want that profession to be slandered too badly. So he's going to focus, though, on all the good things that Jesus does in his healings and all of the lepers that he cures, the lame people he makes walk. And this is unique because Luke, as a physician, has a unique curiosity and concern about Jesus not only healing people's souls, but also their bodies. And not only uh, in eternity to come, fixing the world, but also beginning that work now here in the present as the advancement of the kingdom goes forward. Luke also is going to focus on the prayers of Jesus. He records a bunch of prayers and takes length and time to make sure that we know how often Jesus prayed, that Jesus goes into desolate places to pray. He wants us to make sure that we know how reliant even our Savior was on prayer. And by example and by extension, he wants us to make sure we know how reliant the apostles were on prayer in the book of Acts. And he wants to make sure that even Theophilus is well understood that prayer is vital to Jesus as our example, to the apostles as the eyewitnesses, and by extension, all believers. Prayer is a vital aspect of faith. And Luke is uniquely concerned to communicate this theological truth as well. And then most importantly, uh, as I mentioned earlier, Luke is a Gentile. And his gospel is uniquely concerned to prove that Christ is not just the Jewish Messiah, but he is also the Messiah of the whole world. Which is unique because in the early church, remember when Luke is writing this, there was a big debate about this. The law was for the Jews. 
for the circumcision. Jesus was Jewish. All of Jesus' initial disciples were Jewish. And so there's this big question, which is, does this message of salvation actually extend beyond the household of Israel? Matthew, when he writes his gospel, is uniquely concerned that the Jews know that this is the Messiah that they were promised. He is concerned about defending Christ to the Jewish audience. So Matthew will uniquely use terms like rabbi and will imply prophecies being fulfilled that only a Jew would have been familiar with. But when Luke writes his gospel, he omits terms like rabbi and omits festivals that a Gentile would have no idea about. And he instead seeks to communicate those same truths to a Gentile audience because he is a Gentile and he's writing to Gentiles. And he focuses on the fact that Jesus in all points in his earthly ministry, was not only for the household of Israel, but also was for the Gentile audience as well. There are a bunch of ways and a bunch of uh, times that uh, Luke records this. In Luke 7, he talks about the centurion who was a Roman official who would have been uh, an antagonist against the household of Israel. And he talks about the centurion going to Jesus and saying, I too am a man under authority. Would you heal my servant? Jesus says he heals that servant. And he is concerned that we know that tax collectors are saved and that Gentile, people who partake in the Gentile system, salvation is for them as well. And in Luke 14, he talks about the great banquet, which we're going to turn to in just a minute. But one of the most on the, on the nose ways that Luke does this, in Luke chapter 3, you get the account of Luke's uh, genealogy of Jesus. And you can glance at it now. I'm not going to read all those names for you. We will get there in a few weeks. But in Matthew's genealogy, Matthew starts with, Abraham. That's where Matthew begins his genealogy. He starts with Abraham, the father of Israel. And when Luke writes his genealogy, he traces it back, starting with the modern time, and traces it all the way back. And if you will look right at the end of Luke chapter 3, at the end of that genealogy account, you will see who Luke concludes his genealogy with. He doesn't conclude it with Abraham. He traces it further back than that. He goes all the way back to the son of Adam, the son of God. Luke traces his genealogy of Jesus back, not to the Israelite savior, but to the savior of Adam, the father of the whole human race. He is not uniquely a Jewish savior, although he came through the Jews and the Gentiles are beneficiary of the Jews. He came as the savior of the whole world and his lineage can be traced back to Adam, our first father. Luke is uniquely concerned to prove this point, that the Gentiles are the beneficiaries of salvation. And he even goes on to uh, prove things like that the Jews reject Jesus as their Messiah, as their Savior, and this is why the message actually goes out to the Gentiles. Paul argues this in Romans, but if you look with me at Luke 14, Luke 14 uh, talks about the great banquet. It's one of the parables that we have uniquely here that's in none of the other Gospels. And we're going to briefly just read it tonight, but we will eventually get to Luke 14 as a parable. Luke 14, uh, starting in verse 12, you you see the parable of the great banquet. And I'm going to start reading in verse 16, which is where Jesus begins to tell this story. He says in verse 16, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. First they said to him, I have bought a field and I must go and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another says, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. 
And so the servant came and reported these things to his master. And the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city, and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded me has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and the hedges and compel some people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you that none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. This parable is uniquely talking about the Jewish rejection of salvation. And because the Jews reject salvation, salvation becomes open to the Gentiles as well. And Luke includes this parable to begin this theology of expounding the fact that Jews are uh, the primary recipients and Gentiles are also recipients of this same salvation. That it is not one salvation and different salvation for Jews and Gentiles. We are of the same Messiah. We are of the same faith promised and the same salvation which is given. So Luke is uniquely concerned to prove that Gentiles are included in the salvation narrative. So that's the extent of salvation. Now Luke also focuses on God's redemptive plan. One of the things he wants to talk about is the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. And he sees this fulfilled in all kinds of ways, but starting with John the Baptist, he begins to expound the fact that John was the first person who was sent to be the forerunner for the Messiah of the Jews. And then he's going to continue this message, and he's going to say that Jesus is the prophesied Messiah, and he's going to give us all kinds of accounts. And he's going to confirm this with angels appearing to shepherds, angels appearing to people in the temple, people in the temple prophesying over this child, children being killed at the time of Herod. And Jesus, in all these ways, is considered to be fulfilling God's plan for salvation. The way that Daryl L. Bach will say it, he's one of the commentators on Luke, one of the respected scholars. And he says that in the Gospel of Luke, you have this evidence that the spiritual forces stand resistant against God's plan, though completely powerless in its advancement. And you will see this in Luke when Jesus begins healing ministries and he begins casting out demons. And the demons are shushed by Jesus. It says he forbids them from speaking. So Jesus is so powerful that the demons can do literally nothing against him. They can't even talk. This is how powerless they are against the advancement of God's plan. And he is uniquely concerned to communicate to us that Jesus is, in fact, the all-powerful Son of God. This is the extent of God's plan. This is the extent of salvation, God's redemptive work. Luke also is uniquely going to address a theology of justification, which we first are introduced to in Luke's gospel, which Paul later teaches in Romans, which are confirmed by the epistles. But justification is really not talked about much in any of the other Gospels. Luke illustrates with us in the story of the prodigal son what justification is uniquely to be viewed as. And he comes to this point where he says that justification is like, and he tells this parable of Jesus. And when Jesus is telling this parable, it concludes with the son who is clearly condemned to be punished. And the father instead covers him with his cloak of righteousness. And Luke is communicating that this is the picture of justification, that it is not a righteousness that is earned, it is one that is bestowed, earned by someone else, and given to the other person. This cloak covers the son, and it atones for the fact, and it testifies to the fact that he's actually a child of this family. And he says that this is what salvation is like, that this son earned nothing, but that the father still covers him in his love and takes him into the family. And so he uniquely begins to unpack for us a theology of what justification is like. Luke is uniquely concerned uh, that we know a lot about Jesus' prayers. I've mentioned this already. 
Jesus' prayers are recorded at length in Luke and periodically throughout his writing. And we really never get too far into the gospel or too far away before another prayer is recorded. And Luke is uniquely concerned to let us know that Jesus lived and died on prayer. He woke up early. He went to bed late. He stayed up all the hours of the night. And he is constantly praying. And he's healing and doing these miracles. And then he's retreating into desolate places and praying. And so he has a unique theology of prayer. The other thing that Luke is uniquely concerned about is that we know about the Holy Spirit. Specifically in Jesus' early life, the Holy Spirit was immensely at work up until the point of his baptism where the Holy Spirit is poured out on Jesus. And the Father says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. But also at other points you get pictures of this as well. And we're going to take a deep dive into this and so we don't have much time for it now. But Simeon in the temple sees the child Jesus, and the Holy Spirit had led him to the temple on that day. And through the Holy Spirit, God had disclosed to this man that he would not die until he saw the Messiah. And Simeon sees this son and declares him to be the child that was always promised. And so the Holy Spirit was at work, not only in John the Baptist, but also in preparing a whole host of Israelites to be ready to receive their coming Messiah. And he continues this theology in the book of Acts, where he makes sure that we know that the early church was dependent on the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit had to move in a mighty way in order for the church to succeed. Now, uh, one thing that is true about this uh, early work, Luke, and these first few verses, is that we get a picture of the fact that Luke is seeking to encourage Theophilus and that he can have certainty concerning the things that were taught to him. But when Luke wants Theophilus to be certain, he doesn't encourage him and uh, give him an emotional counsel. Luke gives him doctrinal facts about who Jesus was and who he came to be and what he came to do. The church finds encouragement in times of persecution, in times of trial. They find encouragement in sound doctrine and sound theology, in being reminded of who Jesus was and what he came to do. Luke encourages Theophilus through the rest of the book of Luke and recording the book of Acts, who Jesus was, what he came to do, and what the theology was that the early church was about. How that's true for us today is we have to have certainty in order to be grounded in the truth. We need the same certainty that Theophilus needs. We not only need to know what we've been taught, we need to be certain of what we've been taught. To a point where if someone comes and begins persecuting the church, that the church can be certain about what has been delivered to it. That the church knows beyond a shadow of a doubt what is true about this Jesus. And certainly Luke had enemies of the gospel then, but we have even more of those enemies present today who seek to, on the basis of history or on the basis of all kinds of speculation, begin to diminish who Jesus was and begin to question his words. And as a church today in America, we are fighting for survival in terms of intellectual truth, in terms of defending the faith, in terms of knowing who Jesus was. And I fear that without that certainty, we might lose who Jesus was and therefore lose our grounds for truth. And so as Luke writes to Theophilus that he might have certainty, my prayer is that as we study Luke, we might begin to also have that certainty, that we can know who Jesus was beyond a shadow of a doubt. So with that being said, uh, in a brief overview, I want to just paint a broad picture of the structure of Luke, and then we can uh, close up the evening and we will pick it up again next week. But the structure of Luke basically follows this. In the early life of Jesus, he records in the first two chapters, John the Baptist's birth being prophesied, and then John the Baptist being born, the birth of Jesus being prophesied, 
and then Jesus being born. He's uniquely concerned to communicate this to us because he wants us to know that it was not a mistake that these children were born, that they were born with a purpose. So that later when we read about them in Matthew and in Mark, we're not confused about who we're reading about because the angels deliver unique prophecies to Zechariah and in prophecies to Mary to tell them what the purpose was of these children being born. And Luke wants to communicate that right on the front end of his gospel. So he puts these birth narratives in place. And then in chapters 3 and 4, he's going to tell us about how Jesus was prepared for ministry. It says he grew in favor and in stature with God. And then he communicates how Jesus faced all these temptations in the wilderness. And he was tried by Satan, but he prevailed. And then this is where Jesus begins his earthly ministry. And Luke is uniquely concerned to let us know that Jesus was prepared well for the ministry that he was going to undertake. And then Luke is going to record for us in verse, chapters 4 and through 9, Jesus' early ministry in Galilee, in, in that region, and what Jesus taught there and what kind of truths he proclaimed. And then he's going to rapidly shift from the ministry in Galilee to chapters 9 through 19, talking all about the Jewish rejection of Jesus. He records, really starting in chapter 9, that last week of Jesus' life and how the Jewish people were in rejection of the teachings of Jesus, how they sought to kill him, how they sought to put him to death, and how Jesus taught these things faithfully, and what he taught to them was understood and then was rejected by the Jews. And he's going to expound this with some of the parables we just looked at, about how this rejection of the Jews, how they reject Jesus as their Messiah, how this begins to make way for the Gentiles to understand Jesus as their Messiah as well. And then in chapter 19, really through the end of the the Gospel of Luke, he starts to focus uniquely on the cross, about what Jesus was doing on that cross, about the fact that Jesus didn't stay on that cross. And he is going to uniquely record not only the cross, but also the resurrection of Jesus. And this is the general structure of Luke. And then he continues this with part two, and he talks about how Jesus, being resurrected, then bestows his spirit upon the early church and how this spirit then moves in power to expand the kingdom of God and how the kingdom of God as it expands begins to advance forth in power and how apostles are raised up under the guidance of this Holy Spirit to advance that truth and how there are churches planted all over the early word and the all over the early world all over uh, the the Roman governments and in intense Jewish opposition facing intense Roman opposition the church still continues to prevail And Luke is seeking to communicate to us that Jesus, although facing resistance, is never thwarted and is never beaten by the forces of evil. So this is the structure of Luke. This is what he's trying to tell us. He's trying to tell us that Jesus is the Messiah. He's uniquely concerned to communicate that to us. And even thousands of years later, we can rest assured of the fact that Luke, having firsthand eyewitness accounts, having examined all things carefully, has arranged for us an orderly way of looking at these events. He wants to communicate to us that Jesus died to save sinners. Jesus' whole ministry was aimed in this direction, that those people who are most rejected by society would be most welcomed by Jesus. And he wants us to know that Jesus doesn't just die to save sinners. He dies to save all sinners. Luke uniquely focuses on the lepers and the prostitutes and the tax collectors. And he's uniquely concerned to communicate them as being in favor with God in the reception of the gospel, that these people who were rejected by all other people in society would be uniquely held in the kingdom of God. And he's going to uniquely tell us that not only Jews are welcomed into this kingdom, but also Gentiles as well, which is good news for us today as Gentiles in the faith. 
So as we study, I, I'm praying that we would be encouraged uh, and that many, just like how Theophilus was encouraged and how many have been brought to faith over the years through the Gospel of Luke, reading it and learning about it, that even with us uh, in this church, that many would be brought to faith as we teach this Gospel, as we learn about it, as we expound its truths to others, that this would, in the tradition of church history, begin to once again work for the purpose of God's kingdom to advance the Gospel, to prove the historic Jesus, and to advance him in history as an undisputed figure who came to save sinners who were otherwise uh, rejected by God. But Jesus stands uniquely to stand in that place. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the writer Luke and for the gospel that he has delivered to us through inspiration, through careful study, through examining the truths of uh, Jesus in his life. Lord, I thank you that Luke, as an inspired author, was able to communicate things to us that we can even find true today. Lord, I pray that as we study Luke, as we get into this text, as we unpack the truths of his words, that we would not only be dependent on our own study and our own examination of the evidence, but that we, just like Luke, would be guided by the Holy Spirit to unpack the truths that were in the text, to learn the lessons that you were trying to communicate to us today, to understand who Jesus was and what he came to do and what that means for us as a response. Lord, I pray that you would uniquely be glorified as we study this text, that it would point us to you, that we would learn more about you so that we can, uh, in a better capacity, worship you as we continue to learn about your word and learn about your truths and learn about all that you have tried to teach us for life and godliness. And Lord, I pray that we would be faithful to your word, that as we learn truths, we would be sure to stand on them and see them as good and right and just, and that we would learn to love you better as a result of our knowledge. Not that knowledge would be knowledge just for knowledge's sake, but that we would learn about you for the sake of loving you better. And Lord, I pray all these things in your holy and precious name. Amen.